the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the Daily Show Prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. I know what you're thinking. This sounds nothing like Dennis. Has he transitioned? Is he now a woman? No, it is 23-year-old Amala Epinobi from PragerU who is subbing for Dennis today. I'll be your guest host, and I hope so far your day has been going well. Mine's been great. Woke up happy and healthy. If you're a regular of this show, you've probably heard my voice before and you probably know who I am. But just in case you're not a regular, again, my name is Amala Epinobi. I'm 23 years old. I'm currently working at PragerU hosting a show called Unapologetic Live, where on the daily we talk about trending stories, pop culture, news topics from a Gen Z perspective, as I was born in 2000 and am a representative of the younger generation. And yeah, that has been my life. That's what I do now. And every now and then I get the pleasure of guest hosting Dennis's show here on the Salem News Channel. So good morning to you all. I woke up happy and healthy today. So it's a good day. We're not going to skip a beat. We're going to get right into stories today. I often wake up and by virtue of what I do have to go and check out what's trending online and what people are talking about, what's getting buzz, and often the topic of cancellation or cancel culture comes up and I'm always interested to see who is the next person who's going to get canceled on the internet. Now much to my dismay I woke up one morning and hopped on Twitter and saw Judy Garland's face. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Judy Garland, she was the star of The Wizard of Oz, A Star is Born, uh, just an icon within the space of Hollywood. And I saw a viral tweet go out that said, quote, two movies, a year apart, the same B word, shout out to Gen Z for teaching me this. And underneath those words were two pictures of Judy Garland, one of her playing her famous character Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, and a second of Judy Garland in blackface. For those of you who don't know what blackface is, it's when a white person puts on black makeup, maybe does their hair in a way that is intended to make them look like a black person, and is often used to portray a caricature of what it means to be black. 
Now, this old picture of Judy Garland was in, in her teenage years. I believe she was about 16 or 17 when she starred in a movie called Everybody Sing. It was in 1938, and it depicts a teenage Judy Garland painted with dark skin, large white lips, and dreadlocks. She played a character known as Judy Belair in the musical comedy who joins a music show as a blackface singer to escape her dysfunctional family. Now, of course, this tweet goes crazy. So many people have something to say. They're shocked to see Judy Garland in blackface. And, of course, there are calls for the cancellation, which is strange because it would be the cancellation of a woman who has long since passed. Judy Garland passed away over 50 years ago now in a, in a very tragic way due to drug addiction. But amongst those calls for cancellation was an overwhelming force to defend Judy Garland. And this made my heart sing. It was wonderful to see people come to her defense. And the main defense being that, one, if you know the story of Judy Garland, you know that she had a very abusive history within Hollywood that especially in her teenage years and young years, she was forced to do a lot of the work that she was doing. She was constantly given drugs. She was on extreme diets to, to keep her shape for these films. She had a particularly abusive relationship with her mother and abusive relationships with the studio heads at MGM Studio, where she was signed from a really early age. And so often when you hear these stories of cancellation where people come after these celebrities, the one very important thing that is missing and that we should all be looking for is context. <laughs> for some reason, we always forget the context of the situation. And if people had just taken two seconds to get a quick Google search about Judy Garland, her past, what she was going through at a time where she might have been depicted in blackface, like 1938, you would have found that she is really not the one to blame here. Not only because of the abusive environment that she lay in, but also because blackface and minstrel shows were something that were not necessarily looked down upon at the time. Remember, a studio was producing this film and putting it out to the general public. This was seen as largely a very normal thing for a white actress to do. So to come after a woman who, for one, is not here to defend themselves, but also has a circumstance that would have led to this sort of behavior, makes absolutely no sense. But of course, uh, we're in 2023, right? Uh, sense is not a top priority for us. Context is not a top priority for us. Nuance is not a top priority for us. And I must put out the reminder that Judy Garland, even for her time, was a massive supporter of the civil rights movement, the LGBTQ movement, and was a force uh, for good in those directions if, if the left wants to look at Judy Garland as an icon in that sense. So to come after her for something she did as a minor with very little agency over her own actions just really astounds me. But that's exactly what cancel culture is, right? There is no room for redemption. And even an action that you committed as a minor, you know, decades and decades ago, you cannot come back from. Which is really interesting when we get into 
the, the main players behind something like cancel culture. Because I imagine that if you spoke to them and asked them what their goal was in canceling individuals, deplatforming them, stripping them of their livelihoods, they would say that they view cancel culture as a force of progress and accountability and that they want to have people take responsibility for things. But I can understand accountability in a sense. That maybe you recognize, hey, this is something that was of the time, certainly not something that I would do in, in today's world. And I recognize that I did that, but I've moved forward. Cancel culture does not leave room for the moving forward part of that equation. In fact, you are relegated to that very action that you committed. And in Judy Garland's case, an action that she would have committed at the age of 15, 16, 17, imagine... Uh, for those of you listening, imagine your 15-year-old self, or if you have children, imagine your, your children's 15-year-old self, and telling your child, you better get in, you know, all the knowledge, all the wisdom that you can possibly amass in this time right now, because you are going to be paused at this moment in your life. You will never progress past it. For every wrong thing that you've done at this moment in your life is going to be looked back on, and you will be frozen in that time there'd be no sense in doing anything, <laughs> learning anything, pursuing anything. Because if that's the reality, then there truly is no room for progress. So there is something inherently wrong, I think, when we, we look at cancel culture. And if we truly wanted it to be a system of accountability, there would be some sort of process set in place where you could acknowledge the things that you've done, say, I recognize that, you know, for that time it was wrong. It's certainly not something that we, we would do now, but I've moved past that. I've learned as an individual. I've progressed as an individual because believe it or not, I'm no longer 15, 16, 17. And that should be the direction that we move in. But of course, the cancel culture is the antithesis of that, right? Because they don't actually want you to progress forward. They want to just beat you down with the hammer of their own will and force you to comply to their narrative. Which is why if, if Judy Garland was here today, and, and, and if I was her, I wouldn't acknowledge. <laughs> I would move on. Because the second you do is, is the second that the mob recognizes... This is how far we have to go to force people to be compliant with our asks. Which is why when you see people apologize to those that are pushing this cancel culture narrative, it never works out in their favor, right? They get the apology, and the response to the apology is, we don't care, too little, too late, you haven't truly progressed, you only apologize because we told you to apologize, and we do not forgive you. <laughs> You are not to be forgiven once the action is committed. In fact, it's not even when the action is committed. It's when we find out that the action was committed. How many years are we divorced from Judy Garland having committed this horrendous act of blackface? Like I said, decades and decades and decades. And she's not going to apologize. She's not here to defend herself. And we should simply move on. And I'm glad that the silver lining in this story is that a lot of people said exactly that move on. She was in the wrong environment for this sort of stuff in the first place. She is not to be blamed. We'll be back to talk about this more.
Don't miss the most inspirational movie of the summer, Briarcliff Entertainment's The Hill. Starring Dennis Quaid in theaters this Friday, the true story of professional baseball player Ricky Hill. Growing up poor in small-town Texas, young Ricky discovered his extraordinary ability for hitting a baseball. But with leg braces and a degenerative spinal disease, the major leagues were just a dream that could never be. Courageously, he risks it all, defying his father's wish to follow in his footsteps to become a pastor. Ricky tries out for a major league scout. Pushing hard to overcome his disability, he goes on to become a baseball phenomenon. Some dreams are unbreakable. The Hill, starring Dennis Quaid, Colin Ford, and Scott Glenn. The true inspirational story about family, faith, and a baseball miracle. Don't miss The Hill, rated PG in theaters this Friday. Get your tickets now. All right, we're back. Good morning, everybody. I'm your sub-host, Amala Epinobi from PragerU. And we just got finished talking about the story surrounding Judy Garland, who committed the act of blackface in 1938 for a movie called Everybody Sing. And you know what? I can understand looking back on that and feeling some pain or outrage towards this uh, tradition of, of putting individuals in blackface, and particularly when people are taking on a stereotypical caricature of of what it means to be black. But I now want to talk about some of the gatekeeping that happens within black culture. If you've not seen me before, I am a biracial female. I am half black and half white. So culturally, there is a a battle going on between the two races that I am. (laughs) And we're constantly hearing more and more about it. You know, I've gone through all of the, the Black Lives Matter back and forth, and we're constantly talking about racial tension within this country. And for those of you who know me, you know that I used to be a, a pretty radical leftist. So I subscribe myself to a lot of the ideological leanings of woke leftism in particular. But let's get to the gatekeeping in black culture. I saw a video the other day and... Again, this video made me really, really happy to see. And it was a video, a very simple one, of a young black girl getting her hair braided. And the video starts with this huge afro that she has on her head, much like my own. And a white woman steps into frame and starts to braid her hair. And the video goes on, there's music playing over it. By the end of it, this young black girl has these beautiful curly braids that have been done. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the process of of braiding black hair, it is quite an extensive process. It is no small feat. Uh, There's a lot of detangling and straightening. And then when we get to the braiding process of our hair, this can take hours. The last time I sat in a braiding chair, it took me eight hours from start to finish uh, to, to step into the hair salon and to walk out with freshly done braids. So that should give you a, a little bit of a view and some context as to what goes on when young black women with super curly hair go to get their braids done. Now this video went out of a white woman doing a beautiful job on this girl's braids. Now, I want to read you a comment that was attached to this video, and it was a comment that got a lot of support from the black community in particular. 
Now, there are some grammatical errors, so bear with me here. The video was posted and a commenter said, See, I'm not about to condone none of this. The gatekeeping ain't good enough for me. Our hair is sacred, and to see this is very disturbing. So we just say F the sisters that have made this their craft, who have made a living off of making us feel beautiful after we leave their shop slash house, who were our therapy session, who we built connections and bonds with, who told us how to properly care for our hair. Why are we taking from our sisters? More money going back into the pockets of the same people who degraded our hair and weaponized it against us. And to pay $600 for these below average braids is the worst part. How much of that $600 you think went back into the black community? What happened to Don't Touch My Hair? For those of you who don't know, within the black community, in some spaces, I won't say all black people, as I, I do not subscribe myself to this belief, there is a belief that white people should not be able to touch black hair. And, and they shouldn't be doing braids like this young woman did so wonderfully in this video. And it, it comes from gatekeeping, as this commenter says, and this separation that some want to keep from white people and white culture at large. They want to keep things that they deem to be black within the hands of the black community. And this is so interesting to me because you'll get two different narratives. And when I was a kid, I was being raised by a white mother and my white mom didn't really know exactly what to do with my hair. So we would shop around to different hair salons and try to find people who could do my hair. And a really large problem was going to a hair salons that could only handle, quote unquote, white hair. Okay? They couldn't handle the curls that I had. And within the left-leaning community that I was in for a large part of my life, it was a point of complaint. Why is it that white people can't learn to do black hair? Why are we going to hair salons where, you know, we are not accepted, where nobody knows how to do my hair? People need to learn to accommodate for the diverse world that we live in right now in the United States. But now, <laughs> as soon as a white woman takes it upon themselves to, you know, breach that barrier, to learn something, and to learn something that is not an easy skill to grasp, then she is demonized for it. She's told that she's stealing from black culture, that she's stealing money from black businesses, and in particular, the black community. Can somebody make that make sense to me? <laughs> because it's not, it's not landing. <laughs> for me, the connection is not being made. You say that you want our cultures to be integrated with one another, that you want to go places where you can find these services and you feel as though you are accepted. And as soon as somebody takes it upon themselves to learn this difficult task, you, you look down upon them for doing that. I saw this video and I thought, wow, this is such a wonderful thing to see. I'm so glad that she's taken it upon herself to make another person feel beautiful through this. But no, it's not okay. And the language around this sounds much like the language of segregation. That black people should only go to black stores and receive black services and buy black products and white people should do the same. How is that progress? How is that beneficial? How is that lending to the melting pot that we live in in this country where that we should be able to celebrate, that we should see a video like this and say, go you, you've done such a wonderful thing, and I'm glad that you've taken this upon yourself? It doesn't, which again is why much of what they say uh, is progress is actually antithetical to progress. It is regressive. We are moving backwards. And 
to people who are grappling with these ideas of cultural appropriation, of taking on something that is not yours, of, you know, cultural credit to another group of people, I say that's not exactly what culture is for. <laughs> culture is not something to be gatekept. And the reason now we live in what I think is a very comfortable, cushy society here in the United States of America is because we've been able to look at other cultures, learn from them, adopt things that they do better than us. I mean, the, the, the very idea of human evolution is contingent upon adopting things from other cultures, watching what other groups of people are doing, learning from it, saying, you know what, that's beautiful, or that has utility. I'm going to adopt that. And give credit where credit is due, sure. But it's not like you have to search back through history to see the very first person who did this thing and, and ask what color they were and then, and then give them credit for, for having created this craft that you now use. And I won't even get into the larger discussion that maybe braids aren't just for black people and maybe historically other races have done hair braiding. Maybe we're not ready for that conversation. But I talk about that at length on my show, Unapologetic Live. You can check it out by going to PragerU.com or any podcast platform. We'll be back. Mike Lindell has a passion to help you get the best sleep of your life. He didn't stop at the pillow. Mike also created the Giza Dream Bed Sheets. These sheets look and feel great, which means an even better night's sleep, which is crucial for overall health. Mike found the world's best cotton called Giza. It's ultra soft and breathable, but extremely durable. Mike's latest deal is the sale of the year for a limited time. You'll receive 50% off the Giza Dream Sheets, marking prices down as low as $29.98, depending on the size. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the Radio Podcasts Square, and use the promo code Prager. There you'll find not only this amazing offer, but also deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the MyPillow 2.0 mattress topper, MyPillow kitchen towel sets, and so much more. Call 800-761-6302 or go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code Prager. I am your guest host, Amla Epinobi, and I think now we're going to take a call, and this call comes from Marie in Minneapolis. Hi, Marie. How are you? Hi. Good, Amala. Thank you for bringing up this topic. Sure. My story is this. I graduated from college over 30 years ago, but I, was, I had braids. I have long, I'm Puerto Rican and French, but I have long, curly brown hair, and I had it in the braids, not the tight cornrows, but the loose, fatter mm-hmm. braids. The girl came up to me in college, black girl, and said, you know, you're not allowed to wear that hairstyle. And I said, well, why not? She's like, because that's my people's hairstyle. And I said, well, you can't own a hairstyle. And I said, actually, my people, the Tahino people, and I think this is just where you left off, other cultures, Indians wore braids, so... And she probably looked at me baffled because she didn't know what a Tahino is. And that was the indigenous people of the island of Boricua, Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And I uh, stood my ground to educate her. And as Dennis always says, judge people in the times that they live, not when we live. 
I absolutely love that, Marie. Thank you so much for your call and for that story. And I can imagine that you are not alone in having a story like this. It is amazing. And what really astounds me the most when I hear a story like this is the audacity that people have and the confidence uh, that they make their, their points with when they are completely wrong. I think what people forget with with hairstyles and really anything uh, cultural that people want to attack and, and accuse of cultural appropriation is these things exist among so many other cultures uh, than, than just black culture, Native American culture, Hispanic culture, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and braids served as a utility for a lot of people back in the day who were not black uh, just to keep your hair in, in a good place so uh, while, while they were going around as as nomads and hunter-gatherers while they were riding horses there, there were so many things that, that braids were, were utilized for so to have somebody confront you and say that you are not allowed to wear this hairstyle I think I would just have to laugh if that ever happened to me and I am so glad that you stood your ground because I've heard so many other stories of people doing the exact opposite, where they get confronted and it makes them cower. And I can understand why that might be the case. The last thing that somebody wants to be called is racist or a cultural appropriator. So it's hard when you're confronted with people who have a lot of audacity and a lot of confidence and they don't understand what they're saying, but they are so angry at you for doing the thing that you did. You have to stand your ground. And if you are a person from any background who's listening right now and you think, I want dreads or I want braids or cornrows or whatever the case may be, you know what? If that's what you want for yourself, then you go out and do it. (laughs) I I sign off on you being able to go out and do it. Not that you even need somebody to sign off on it. We all have the freedom to, to do with our bodies what we choose. And if that is cornrows or braids or dreads, then by George, you should go out and do it. (laughs) Don't let people tell you what you can and cannot do. And I've had just such amazing moments in talking about something that I am still shocked to this day people are so sensitive about. I, not too long ago, was invited to be on the Dr. Phil show. And I grew up watching Dr. Phil as a young kid, it would be on the TV in the background as I was playing around my house because, you know, on basic cable, there was Dr. Phil. And I typically had associated him with family drama. And that would have been a show I would have never have dreamed to be on because it probably would have been a nightmare. <laughs> I don't want to be one of those dysfunctional families that's on that's on Dr. Phil. But he recently started to delve into more political and cultural conversations in the final seasons of his show. And they did a whole a whole episode on cultural appropriation. And I luckily was invited on to, to talk about this. And some of the points that were being made by the opposing side of this debate were truly baffling. They were saying that, you know, white people or any people outside of the race of blackness, they should not be able to have dreads. They should not be able to have braids. You shouldn't be able to make foods from other cultures unless you credit those cultures. And you should not be able to make products from other cultures unless part of the profit that you reap from making that product is given back to the original people who created said product, food, style. Can you imagine how much time we would be spending tracking down the different things we're doing in our lives if we had to look for the original culture and the original group of people that that created them? It would be a waste of time. 
I'll save you the trouble there. It would be a waste of time. <laughs> because things shift and move and different cultures are attributed with different things. And you have no obligation to track that down. You can check out that Dr. Phil episode online and more of my content at PragerU.com. And if you'd like to support PragerU this month, it will be triple match. So go to PragerU.com slash donate. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I am your sit-in host, Amala Ebenovi from PragerU. And to start off this hour, we're going to talk about Hollywood again. I started off the first hour going back to Judy Garland, who has recently had an attempt at cancellation for blackface that she uh, did in 1938. Of course, Judy Garland is not here to defend herself, but we're going to talk about somebody who is here to defend herself. And I'm sure you've heard many a news story about a movie that is going to be coming out in 2024 from Disney, and that movie is Snow White. It is being remade. Now, Judy Garland did the, her whole blackface thing in 1938. We're going to take it back one year prior to that, to 1937, when the original Snow White was released by Disney, and Walt Disney spent a lot of time working on this film. It was the first animated feature film of its kind for Disney, and and just a little bit of background on some of the artistry that went in this. Thousands of people had their hands on this film. Artists, animators, screenwriters, Walt Disney himself. There was so much work put into Snow White as it was the sort of first animated film of its kind. Now, Walt Disney took out as many loans as he could possibly take out to create Snow White. He truly wanted this to be a piece of art that was lasting, classic, timeless, and so much so that he, he went to the bank so often to take out money for this venture that they told him, Walt, I, I, gotta, I gotta give it to you straight here. We're done giving you money on this film. I'm so sorry. They capped him off at about $1.5 That's what he put into this. And... It was a success, a smash hit. Uh, Snow White comes out at $1.5 million in, in budget there. It has now amassed over $400 million. So he certainly got his investment back on that film. But Disney is in a cycle of remakes now. No, no great originals. Just going back to those timeless classics and remaking them. Now they've recast Snow White. And the, the woman who is going to be playing Snow White... The fairest of them all is Rachel Zegler, a young Hispanic actress who's taking on this role. Now, I want one thing to be straight here. Rachel Zegler is wildly talented. I've followed her for much of her career before she even had one in Hollywood. She had a really small YouTube channel where she would sing musical theater tunes and do stuff uh, similar to what you would see on Broadway. And as a musical theater nerd myself, I followed her as a young child. And to see her skyrocket into stardom in Hollywood was a beautiful thing to see. But now it seems as though she's on the downfall because we all know Snow White is a, time, a timeless classic that really elevated a story of this just wonderful young woman who was feminine, but strong and had a lot to offer and faced adversity. And for much of the time as a child, when I watched Snow White, 
I thought this is somebody to emulate. This is something to aspire to do to, to be as strong as this young woman is. But apparently she is not strong enough. Rachel Zegler has done many a media interview about Snow White and her general view of this movie is that it is not quite feminist enough. That the venture of finding true love is something that women should no longer aspire to and that it's not about you know, finding your Prince Charming anymore. You shouldn't aspire to be saved by Prince Charming anymore. In fact, a real woman, a real girl boss, a real feminist saves herself. Now, I want to play a, a, a clip of Rachel Zegler talking during an interview so you can just get a view for what she sounds like. Here it is. I mean, you know, the, the original cartoon came out in 1937, and very evidently so. <laughs> um, there is a big focus on her love story um, with a guy who literally stalks her. <laughs> yeah. Weird. Super weird. So we didn't do that this time. <laughs> so, no, so no prince or a different kind of prince? We have a different approach to what I'm sure a lot of people will assume is a love story just because, like, we cast a guy in the movie. Right. Andrew Burnap, great dude. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's one of those things that I think everyone's going to have their assumptions about what it's actually going to be, but uh, it's really not about the love story at all, which is really, really wonderful. And whether or not she finds love along the way is anybody's guess until 2024. Um all of Andrew's scenes could get cut. Who knows? It's Hollywood. Oh, goodness gracious. You'd think Disney would do some PR training before sending these actresses out. And Disney used to be known as a corporation that was very strict when it came to their princesses and princes. You would have to go through extensive training before talking to media about these films because Disney had a general image that they were trying to uphold. Rachel Zegler has obliterated that image with this Snow White remake that will now come out in 2024. So I took it upon myself upon hearing all these ramblings about how anti-feminist Snow White is, to go back and watch the original 1937 version of the film. Now, I'm going to give a spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen it in the decades that it has been out. We're going to talk about the film. So, you would expect, by virtue of what Rachel Zegler just said, to see some sort of babbling, bimbo, overly feminine character in Snow White. But when you go back and watch a film that I must reiterate was made in 1937, think about what was happening in that time for women. Snow White is an unbelievably strong character. We start off the film with Snow White, you know, trouncing around the woods, singing, doing the beautiful thing that she does. And we learn of an evil queen who wants to take Snow White's life. Because Snow White is deemed to be the fairest of them all, and the evil queen is jealous. The evil queen sends out an assassin to kill this young teenage girl. The assassin takes it upon himself to find Snow White, threatens her with a dagger, but finds that he cannot bring himself to take the life of this young woman. Now, of course, Snow White is, is fearful of what she's just experienced. She screams, she's scared... But that little girl gets back up and goes, can't live here anymore. I'm going to have to venture out into the woods and find a new place to live. Does that scream to you some sort of weak, overly feminine character? No. And again, it was made in 1937. So Snow White ventures out and she finds the dwelling of the seven dwarves, who will no longer be the seven dwarves in the 2024 film, mind you, because casting actors with dwarfism was deemed to be offensive. So Disney has cast aside the seven dwarves, stealing what would have been seven roles for actors with dwarfism, and has now made them into apparently and allegedly the seven magical creatures. 
or as I like to refer to them, the seven magical diversity hires. (laughs) So... In the 1937 version, Snow White stumbles upon the dwelling of the seven dwarves, and she makes herself at home. She doesn't ask questions. She doesn't ask permission. She goes right into that house. She starts cleaning up. She's baking pies. She's making food. And she goes to sleep in one of the seven dwarves' beds. Now these dwarves, hi-ho, hi-ho, come back home from work, and they realize somebody's in our house. There is an intruder among us. (laughs) And they find Snow White in one of the beds. And before they are quite literally about to club this young girl to death, Snow White wakes up, meets the seven dwarves, and decides, I'm not going to ask permission. I'm going to stay here. Mind you, these are seven grown men. And she just asserts herself into into their lives. Now she says, of course, I'll clean and I'll cook for you, which we view to be feminine traits. And that's, that's totally fine. But she tells the dwarves, before you sit down at my dinner table, you're going to go wash your hands. I know you're dirty from working all day. You go away, and then you have permission to sit at my dinner table. And these seven burly grown men go and do exactly what she says before they sit and eat with her. Again, does any of that sound anti-feminist to you? Does any of that sound like Snow White is some weak character who's incapable of defending herself? No, but because throughout this film, she is saved by the seven dwarves and by the prince, we can no longer have that because women mustn't be saved by anyone other than themselves. And if that is to be the case, what's the point of making the film at all? Throughout the film, it is emphasized that Snow White is looking for true love. She is looking for her prince and the prince does find her. And guess what? He saves her. Is that a wrong thing to aspire to as a young woman? Are we not supposed to want to find true love? Does that go against who we are as as beings? <laughs> I think it does. I think most of us as individuals, whether you're a man or a woman, are looking for, for love and acceptance in your life and somebody who cares for you and somebody who you can care for. And to repackage these films as if that should not be a goal for young women is distasteful and disgraceful. So I I would love to see Disney come back and say, we're going to do something different here. We've heard sort of the the outrage and the pushback from the general public in this creation of this new film, and we're going to go in a different direction. And in a direction that emphasizes the timeless classic that Snow White has always been since it was featured in 1937. But that's probably not what we're going to get. We're probably going to get a wokeified remake of this film, as we always do, and I can guarantee you it will not be classic. I talk about Snow White more at length in my show, Unapologetic Live, which you can check out at PragerU.com. And if you donate to PragerU and the content we create, it will be triple matched. So check it out at PragerU.com. <laughs> Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 
800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Good morning, everybody. I'm your guest host, Amla Epinobi from PragerU. Now, I want to take a call from David in Washington, D.C. Hi, David. How are you? Hi, uh, Amala Ekunobi. Did I say it right? Yes, you did. Hi. <laughs> uh, thank, thanks, thanks so much. Uh, so, um, so I was think I was listening to you the first hour, and I couldn't help but think of Dana Lash. I mean, my question to you was: Is that the whole transgenderism vibe sort of like the modern day bl- blackface? Hmm. I mean, taking taking a cue from Dana Lash, she describes it as guy in woman face or woman in guy face which now i'll let you now now i'll let you do the talking yeah yeah sure david thank you so much for your call i appreciate that and yes that is a very valid point to be made and it's so funny that it comes on the heels of us talking about judy garland who did blackface in 1938 because woman face as we'll, as we'll term it, is happening everywhere now. If you are a biological man who thinks that I can simply be a woman by, you know, throwing on makeup, turn, putting a wig on, wearing women's clothing, then are you not committing the same act as those who did minstrel shows back in the day, you know, were committing? Is that not the very same thing? You are pushing forward a caricature of what it means to be a woman rather than the reality of what it means to be a woman. And I can't think of that as anything other than woman face. It's interesting because at the forefront of much of our cultural conversations has been, you know, drag shows, drag entertainment, which used to be simply for for adults, but now they're happening in public spaces. Kids are watching them, but We won't delve too much into that. I just want to talk about the idea of drag. Drag is supposed to be this, or or is really, this bimboification of womanhood. You're you're wearing the prosthetic chest that is far larger than, than most women's would be. You're doing really just crazy makeup that is far more than the average woman would wear. And you're taking on a stronger caricature of what are the stereotypes of femininity. That's the very same thing that transgender individuals are doing when they claim to be women and they take on the characteristics that they deem to be female characteristics. And it's it's woman face. That's it. That's all it is. I hope historically we'll look back on it like that. I, I doubt that we will, given the uh, agenda that's now been injected to much of the conversation surrounding transgenderism. But I can't help but agree with Dana when she says it is very similar to blackface. We're going to take another call from Sonia in Atlanta, Georgia. Hi, Sonia. How are you? I'm doing well, and yourself? I'm doing great. It's been a good day. <laughs> it's a good show. I really enjoy it. Thank you. <laughs> As I called about um, when you were talking a while ago about braids and, and hair braids in the black community, black women, um, I happen to play a lot of tennis, a lot of folks there, and they're all sizes, ages, and colors, and plenty of women, um, both black, white, 
and Hispanic and so forth. But I, when you talked about the braids, the braids, my grandmother, um, my, my mother's family is German, and they came over from Germany when she was 10 years old. And my grandmother always had braids because she had long hair. Mm. And uh, the, the old-time bakers and cooks and so forth like that kept their hair out of the way um, because they would pull it back and, and braid it and wrap it around their head. And I remember clearly, uh, we lived in Detroit, and I would, she would babysit us when we, we weren't old enough to go to school. And she would sit down uh, later in the day or late in the day and take her braids down, unwrap her head. And, of course, they were, you know, uh, gray and black mixed and so on. She unwrapped her head from her braids, and then eventually, before nighttime, she would sort of comb it out and whatever, and when she ever she was going to wash her hair. But it's as clear in my mind today as it was then. So braids are not exclusive to any group. Right. And, of course, we now see a lot of men with braids, and they are, and we live in Atlanta. It's a very diverse community. So we have people of all colors, races, and they're running around with braided hair, and it is not an exclusive thing. A hundred And furthermore, like I say, I play a lot of tennis. I'm with a lot of uh, black women and white women and Hispanic and so forth, and nobody makes any to-do about it. And a lot of them do have braided hair. I've never heard anybody discuss this and feel insulted by it. <laughs> Well, I'm glad to hear that, Sonia. And I think it's just ridiculous to hear this. Yeah. It's just, I, you will I, be astounded. I mean, the, the, the deeper you dive into this, and, and thank you so much for your call, you will find that you will be astounded by some of the things that people get offended by. I think the threshold for offense has become so low in our society and, and probably because we entertain it a little bit too much. And we, we allow for people to just espouse their grievances on these things far more than, than we should. And I love to hear that you have not seen trouble in your respective community of people calling out people for wearing these braids. And it's unfortunate that other people don't have the, the same story as you have and that they are getting called out for these things. Things. And I love that you mention that purely because they're playing tennis, you might want your hair braided, you know, you're going to be sweating, you're going to be running around, it might make sense to just braid up your hair. And this is not going to be something that is culturally specific. It's going to be something that all people do. I have, have gotten into watching UFC. Uh, and mainly because I, I date somebody who's interested in, in UFC and in fighting and all that stuff. And the women, when they when they fight in the octagon, guess what they're doing? They're braiding their hair because it, it helps them. They, they don't want to get their hair grabbed. They don't want to have any trouble with it flying in their face. So they braid their hair back. Now, to think that somebody would get mad at that, of course, blows my mind. Or can I even say that it blows my mind? Because now I, I, I don't know that I'm surprised by anything these days. But to see people have outrage towards these things is just astounding. I'll say it again. Do what you're going to do. If you want to braid your hair because you're going to play tennis or you're going to be a boxer or you know what? You just really love the way that braids look. You go out and do it. You don't listen to people who are going to bring you down about it. And it's not cultural appropriation. It's appreciation. People should love that other people want to do the same styles that they have and that they want to share this in our little melting pot of a country. We'll be back to talk more. 
Alright, we're back. I'm your guest host, Amala Epinobi from PragerU, and I'd like to remind you, if you'd like to support the content that we create at PragerU, which is not just my show, but five-minute videos, we do courses for uh, young kids that they can watch that are gonna not have all the crazy woke stuff that you find in much of kids' content today, you can check it out by going to PragerU.com, and if you'd like to support the creation of that content, you could donate. Your donation will be triple-matched if you choose to donate today, and it is our August fundraising month so everything we do is is free and uh, we rely on the donations from people who want to see this work furthered now I've I've talked about this video that I came across on my show last week but I wanted to, to talk to you guys about it today I saw a video go extremely viral. When I say extremely viral, I mean tens of millions of views on this video across all of the respective platforms that it was posted on. And it was a seemingly innocuous video. You wouldn't think too much of it. It's a video of a young woman who seems to be piloting a small aircraft. And in the caption of the video, she said, you know, I'm finally getting all of my, my final piloting hours in before she, she gets her license. And it's simply a video of her, you know, scanning the air, talking to air traffic control, and presumably piloting a plane. And I thought to myself, why did this get millions of likes? Why did this get millions of views? And for one thing, I'm, I'm terrified of flying, uh, irrationally so. So maybe it went viral because this is a, a young girl doing something that people are scared of. And that's astounding. That's cool. So people want to support it. I hopped into the comments to investigate, to check further, to see why people uh, really wanted to make this video go viral. And to my dismay, it was because the young woman was black. Many of the comments were saying, oh my gosh, it is so crazy to see a young black woman piloting a plane. I never thought I'd see this. How crazy is it that she's capable of doing something like this? And I'll read one of the, the comments here. It says, there's a black girl pilot on TikTok. Her TikToks show her actively flying planes by herself. She should have millions of followers, but this type of stuff goes unnoticed and so she doesn't. This is major. We up. And by we up, they mean black people are doing well. Black people are on the up and up. And one might read this comment and think, you know, this is a compliment. What a wonderful thing. They see a black girl flying a plane. They're cheering her on. They're, you know, extending their congratulations. Super cool. When I hear this, uh, it is very backhanded in its nature to say her TikTok shows her actively flying planes by herself. <laughs> As if for some reason, being born in, in a black body makes you less capable than other people. And there is a term for this. I learned this term from reading the books of Thomas Sowell, who is a renowned economist who's written many a book on uh, discrimination and race and all of the racial narratives that we subscribe ourselves to in this country. And he calls this the soft bigotry of low expectations. I... I'm, I'm sort of changing my mind on the phrasing a bit the more I hear stories like this because it no longer comes across to me as soft bigotry. It's just straight up bigotry. <laughs> it's just straight up bigotry. If you see a black individual who's managed to put them put themselves in a place of success in their life and you think, that's so crazy because they're black or that's so wonderful because they're black or, you know, you've done great for a black person, you might 
B, committing an act of bigotry. <laughs> it, we, are, we are not meant to be, you know, expected less of, right? We're the same as any other group of people. We're capable of the same things as any other group of people. So that soft bigotry of low expectations is very real. And I know a lot of people share this experience. I've gotten comments on uh, my YouTube channel, which of course make me laugh because I'm very lighthearted in my nature, I think. It's very hard to offend me. But I once got a comment (laughs) that said... Uh, let's see, black, female, and intelligent? I never thought I'd use those three words in the same sentence. This is a real comment from somebody who thought that they were complimenting me. And again, we're back to the soft bigotry of low expectations. We should not be surprised to see a young black woman piloting a plane. We should not use phrases like black excellence, black girl magic, black this, black that. It's simply excellence. It's simply a pilot. It's simply an accolade that somebody who's just like anybody else was able to, you know, get to and it was able to achieve. And as soon as we take the racial element out of it is when we do ourselves a service as a country. We'll be back. I'm your guest host, Amala Epinobi from PragerU. And of course, if you want to support the content that we're creating at PragerU, you can donate at PragerU.com slash donate. Your donation will be triple matched. It's our August fundraising month. So if you'd like to support us, you can do so by going to PragerU.com slash donate. Now, it's my final hour today hanging out with you guys. I'd like to take some calls. Let's talk to, let's see, Kathleen in Parrish, Florida. Hi, Kathleen. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? So nice to hear you. Oh, um, I'm doing well. Thank you. The first time I ever got on. So it's pretty cool. Oh, that's amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just to give you a background, I want to talk about the cancel culture, but some of the aspects, um, which even was your last segment too, that is all cancel culture. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they're trying to get rid of a lot of our things and some of the stuff we want to keep and some we don't. And some things are humorous. Yes. But sometimes they're not later on, like you said. Remember, you said if it changes the era, it might not be funny anymore. Right. And so we know. I think most people understand that. So the newer writers write something new. I even think Friends is funny now. I never used to watch it. And now that it's in reruns, I watch it and I laugh a lot. So it it just depends. But um, I was going to mention about, um, uh, did you ever see the movie Some Like It Hot? You might be too young to have seen it. Uh, no, I have not have seen that. I'm, I'm familiar with okay. it, but I have not watched it. I, I really highly recommend it. It's hilarious. Anyway, Jack Lemon and Tony Curtis felt like they had to dress up as women because they wanted to get in this band, but it was an all-women band, and they mm-hmm. couldn't get any other jobs. It was, during, it was during the Depression. So they dressed up as women so they could be in this band, and they traveled around, and um, Marilyn Monroe was in that band uh, with them, too. She sang in the band. Okay, so it was hilarious how they acted and when they were dressed up and everything, and they, it was just, you know, right on. Um, and so we don't want to lose those classic moments. Or like, I think even Richard Pryor talks in his, you know, even though he had bad language, <laughs> he, he, um, he, I think he makes fun of his own, like he'll talk about his own experiences and he might put, 
more of a black accent on or whatever, something like that, you know, the, the traditional black accent, um, to make a point. Right. So I don't want to, I don't want those things to be ruined or lost. We don't want to just be nothing. I mean, I, I'm telling you, my background is I, I was, I retired from the Navy. I retired from teaching. And then I also was a human resources manager when I was in the Navy. So I, I really feel like I'm sensitive to a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, we just got to be careful not to lose the humor. I completely you know? agree, Kathleen. And thank you so much for your call. You've made some very poignant part, uh, points in, in what you just said there, because there are ways to do these things. And I think do them in a way that is tasteful, that lands with an audience. When I think back to my childhood, I remember watching Mrs. Doubtfire with uh, Robin Williams, who he dressed up as an older woman and ended up, you know, taking care of kids in the movie. And it was a brilliant comedy. And it landed with really an international audience. People loved that movie. I also was a big musical theater nerd, as many of you know. So I was watching Hairspray, where uh, you had Mrs. Turnblad in that movie, played by John Travolta, who dressed up as a woman and was meant to be perceived as a woman throughout the duration of the film. And when these things are done tastefully, and they're not just like a a throw in the face of anything, but just truly in, in the name of comedy or artistry, these are things that we should not lose. Uh, as, as my producer Taylor often says, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? <laughs> you got to get rid of the things that maybe aren't working and, and leave the things that do. And all of that we can decide on an individual basis. If somebody's doing something that you don't like, that you don't want to be patron to, then don't. And, uh, you, know, you know, move on in your merry way. There are times where throughout the history of of Hollywood, if we just want to talk about like movies and media in particular, these things have been done right. Kathleen mentioned some like it hot. I mentioned Miss Doubtfire, Hairspray. You can come up with a full list of when these things have been done well and tastefully and it's landed with the audience and we should not lose that. And it's interesting that the through line in the three examples that we've used is comedy. And I often say comedy is this, the, the final frontier of free speech. If you start to stifle the speech of comedians, what they're able to joke about, you know, what, what topics they're allowed to breach, we've, we've lost. We've lost because comedians are there to make, to make light of things, to add a sense of comic relief, to inject a little bit of laughter in some of the everyday woes that we deal with as a society. And if they're unable to do that in, in a way that, is, is free and allows them to talk about anybody and everybody and to do imitations, then I think we're truly losing a lot of joy. We're going to take another call from Rick in Greenville, South Carolina. Let's see. Hi there, Rick. Oh, sorry. Is that you talking to me? Oh, uh, I guess we have two Ricks on the call. This one actually is okay. from Rick in Columbus, Ohio. Hi, Rick. Yeah. I'm I'm good. How are you? It's hard to follow up all the your last caller. <laughs> a couple things. <laughs> no worries. I, I had mentioned to your screener uh, are you uh, the interactions between George Jefferson and Archie Bunker or mm. Gold. Mm-hmm. Those, are, if you ever watched some of those. No, those I have not seen shows. that. Enlighten oh, me. Oh, you. You've never. Oh, your screener said she, you were familiar. Archie Bunker and, and uh, George Jefferson all in the family. Oh my goodness. The black white families. Oh, and Archie was a Ray. Oh, they, they are hilarious. Yeah. And, and oh my, you ought to look some of that up. <laughs> they are gold. I will. Yes. The uh, but also you started talking about America and think about what's going on in 
Hong China with Hong Kong nowadays and Tiananmen Square. And then, you know, what's going on in Hong Kong the last couple of years. That's that's very scary. Yeah, I, I thank you for your call, Rick. When you talk about uh, the different media that you just talked about, uh, let's let's start with the All in the Family. It's interesting that we get packaged this narrative that uh, shows are not diverse enough and that we need to just in, inject diversity into our media and entertainment. And it's so interesting because as, as a leftist, that was something that I did subscribe myself to. I would have taken the hammer down on a lot of comedians for things that they've said I would have said that the industry needs more diversity but come to think of it when I was younger I was watching shows with plenty of diversity really great comedy and it's comedy that I now long for in today's time and I wish we could have just uh, just a reinvigorated sense of allowing things to be funny even when they're offensive, even when they talk about something sensitive, can we simply allow it? Uh, All in the Family was not on my, my board back then, but Family Matters was a great show, and I'm sure many of you watched that with, with Steve Urkel and Carl Winslow and, you know, following the ins and outs of this black suburban family in America. And that was one of many shows that were exactly like that. And to watch that brought me such joy as a young person. It's somehow a joy that I lost in being injected with this narrative that somehow there wasn't enough diversity in the in the shows that I was watching and in what was being created. And it's truly devastating that that narrative is being perpetuated now because we know it's not true. Hollywood was all about telling unique stories. Now, we can say it wasn't always like that, right? If you push far enough back into Hollywood, you would see a lack of, of representation for, for certain racial groups and backgrounds. But I truly believe that humans progress naturally and that very seldom do we need like large, massive pushes and, and forceful uh, progression on these fronts. Hollywood would have found its way into representation with or without the people who were screaming about it on a daily basis. Now, on the topic of Hollywood, I have another caller who's talking about uh, movies here, Rick, who is in Greenville, South Carolina. Hi, Rick. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Hi. How are you? What 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 makes you call hey. today? Well, I'm a, I've been a, a, a Christian marriage counselor for 52 years. Mm -hmm. And I, I graduated from Yale Divinity School in 1974, and I tell people, and I'm still a Christian. Imagine. And uh, the first day at seminary in 1970, they were saying that men and women are both equal and similar. And I thought, wait a minute, a homosexual and heterosexual relationship the same? So I asked the question, are they no qualitative difference? Hmm. And it was the sound of one hand clapping. So from that kind of awful beginning, I realized this is not helpful in marriage counseling when you don't distinguish the difference between masculine and feminine. Hmm. And so I did, a, I did a doctorate on the tale of Psyche and Cupid, the marriage of Psyche and Cupid. And that's a role model for all the fairy tales, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, everything. And Psyche, or Snow White, or Sleeping Beauty, is really a plucky soul, as you were saying. Mm -hmm. And she first has a curse put on her by the deep state, who is Venus, 
mirror mirror on the wall who's Rick we're going to bring you back in the next segment I'm going to cut you off in just a second we're going to talk to you and get back to that Snow White story in just a moment we'll be back and host Amala Epinobi. We got cut off there on a call with Rick from Greenville, South Carolina. Rick and I were talking about what Snow White was meant to represent. Rick, welcome back. Let's get back to your call. Thank you. Well, Snow White begins with Venus, the mother of Cupid, or the prince. Mm -hmm. And she looks at the mirror, and she says, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And every time the mirror is saying, oh, you're the babe, you're the babe. And then the mirror makes a mistake of saying, oh, you have a competitor, the mm-hmm. Psyche or Snow White. And she finds out not only is she got competition for human love, but her own son, Cupid, is in love with her. So she does everything she can to make sure that Psyche or Snow White, or Sleeping Beauty, don't get married. Hmm. Okay? She is the religion of the deep state. They have to destroy fatherhood and marriage. And that's what's the story. But she fights, and she has help from Zeus or Jupiter, so she has to go through many trials and tribulations, but she ends up, winning the hand of Cupid, who's turned his act around, and they become married and that. Oh. So, all the, uh, so Snow White is, 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 in other words, the deep state wants you not to be married to a man. That's <laughs> why the seminary was so confused in the beginning. Well, they Rick- don't know the difference. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much for your call. I appreciate that that deeper explanation there. And it's so interesting because when we get into the modern conversation surrounding this Snow White remake, the real emphasis in much of the PR that they've done for this new movie is that Snow White is not going to be obsessed with love, much like she is in the 1937 Disney version of the film. She is not going to be saved by the prince. He is not going to, you know, go and awaken her with this un- unconscious kiss. And it's interesting to hear that more historical view on the story or the story that presupposed the 1937 Snow White version because we're hearing a lot of the, the similar sentiment now in, in 2024. <laughs> and I, I'd like to think this movie is going to flop, right? Because I think Disney has put out a very big handful of movies that have all just underperformed in the box office. I think they got a small win with The Little Mermaid that came out featuring Halle Bailey, but I don't know that they'll have the same win here with Snow White. It seems that across the board, even in left-leaning spaces, people are upset about the move that they are making with this story, and particularly the sentiment around young women not being encouraged to find or dream about true love. And what I love about it is that it's hit something inherent in all human beings across all sides of the aisle that we all do want to be loved and we want to find that. And that was the beautiful thing about Snow White in the original film is that 
in her in her youthfulness and in her femininity, she was searching for love, and she had found that in in the prince. And he circles back to find her again. And guess what? They fall in love, much to the dismay of modern Disney creators.、Uh, that is what has happened. We're now going to hear from Denise in Canoga Park, California. Hi, Denise. How are you? Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I so love listening to you. You are so brilliant and impressive. <laughs> Thank you, Denise. I really appreciate that. What makes you call today? I'm just listening to all your callers and everything, and I'm, I'm feeling like you guys are in my head. To me, it's like a, ca- a cancel culture. All of this stuff from the doctors that talk about, you know, the COVID stuff to the fairy tales. Instead of learning, they're canceling the next generation. After you is not going to know any of these stories. And as far as what you guys were just saying about Snow White, also what they're doing at Disneyland and, and canceling all the. You know, trying to not make fairy tales. Children need fairy tales. It's fantasy. This is how they learn. This is how they grow.、Uh, I don't understand. I, it, it floors me. I'm 69 years old, and this、mm. is not second generation native, and they're going to grow up not knowing how to fantasize, how to be creative. That's how you do it. Yes, I completely agree, and thank you so much for making that point, Denise. I, when I think back on my childhood, some of the most magical parts of childhood, and where I learned some of the timeless life lessons that I carry with me now as an adult, was from fairy tales and stories and books that had a deep reverence for finding universal human truths. And that's something that's wonderful about Snow White. But you can insert any sort of major fairy tale that we grew up on collectively as. A society that stood the test of time. The reason they stand the test of time is because they connect to something deeper and more profound. I think within the human condition, the human psyche, and within human drives. And that used to be the goal of artistry, creation, and even in large part Hollywood. Even though they were up to some nefarious stuff behind the scenes, they were trying to connect to, to a deeper sentiment within within human beings. And when you did that successfully with A piece of art; it would last for decades. It is the reason we have a Snow White remake being made in 2024 when the original was made in 1937, because a timeless classic was created when that film was released. Now, the issue and the hole we're going to find ourselves in today is that artists are so consumed with their own agenda and their their own self obsessiveness that. Movies aren't going to be timeless anymore. I feel as though thirty years from now, you could put me in front of a TV screen and you could play me numerous films and ask me what year they were made, and I will be able to tell you with with sheer consistency every single film that was made in the year twenty twenty three because you will find consistent. Consistent displays of forced diversity, of random virtue signaling, of feminist girl bossing, of just idiotic men who are not appealing to masculine nature whatsoever—a complete divorce from what it means to be feminine. All of that will be present in films that were made in this era. And no longer will you see timeless classics that stand the test of time because they're no longer made. With that in mind, movies now are made for this year, for this moment, and for nothing else. And you know, 
I'm in, I'm in LA right now where there is a massive rider strike happening. And if you drive around, you'll see them with their picket lines and, you know, screaming about how they need to be paid more. And I will be the first to admit, I don't know the logistics of how these writers and actors are paid. It could very well be that some of the smaller actors in their positions in Hollywood are not being paid enough. And I'll, I'll leave that to, to be explored. But I can say with certainty that there has not been a movie or film that I have watched in the past five years that has made me think, wow, these people need more money. <laughs> and maybe if these writers and actors reinvigorated the sense of true art and creativity that we had in the early 2000s, the 90s, and all the time prior in Hollywood and media, maybe if they reinvigorated that feeling, we would get better products, people would pay more, and they would make a higher wage. As simple as that, I, I think. And of course, I'll get into the logistics at a later date, and maybe I'll be proven wrong on that front. But I just really have never thought these people need a pay raise. <laughs> we'll take more calls in the next segment. We'll be back. You can check out my show at PragerU.com. <laughs> the Dennis Prager Show. Good morning. I'm your guest host, Amla Epinobi, sitting in for Dennis today. We're going to take some more calls. I'd like to take a call from Robert in Dallas, Texas. Hi, Robert. How are you? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. What makes you call in today? Well, I, it's just my thought that in the in the 80s, we were pretty much done with racism. We had movies like Blazing Saddles. We had uh, All in the Family. I say 80s, 70s, 80s. Mm-hmm. But nobody really cared. It wasn't a big deal. And I'm not sure exactly when that changed back. Yeah. I mean, we could all sit around and laugh together and nobody it didn't bother anybody. Right. Robert, thank you so much for making that point and for calling. It seems like, I mean, obviously I wasn't alive in the 80s or even the 90s. I was born in 2000. But when you look back, it seems like there was just sort of this like golden era where these issues were not as, as big as they've been made to be now. Now, was, was racism totally eradicated? No. I think so long as race exists, there will be racist individuals. Uh, there will, will always be small-minded people who try to divide people on the basis of immutable character characteristics like race and sex and things like that. But it seemed like we were far better off and sort of getting together under a, a shared umbrella of, of values and ideals and a love for this country that we had. But that has since uh, been been disbanded largely. And I, I think much of it is due to movements that maybe sparked during the 60s and 70s that didn't truly come to fruition until uh, until now. Much of the work surrounding, you know, wokeness, critical race theory, critical feminism, that work was started out in the 70s by... Uh, we, they're, they're tenured professors now, but intellectuals, if we can even call them that, and academics at the time, who started to write these ideas out, get them published in journals, and go through that process over and over and over again. And these postmodern ideas that have now become wokeism in today's time, the seeds were planted long ago. They just weren't as popular as they are now. And I think they've taken hold largely through the academic system that we have in this country. That seems to be where we can trace back the origins of this. And like I said, it was, you know, critical race feminists and, and uh, you know, these, these theorists who were writing these books out and these journals out that were planting the, the larger 
seeds for these movements that would come to to fruition in today's time. The Richard Delgados of the world, the Gene Stefancics, the Derek Bells, these are all names that I would look up if you want to get familiar with some of the specifically racial ideologies that we now see in this this modern 2023 era. They wrote these journals out about the history of the transgressions in this nation, like slavery and Jim Crow. And of course, those things are true. They happened. They should be acknowledged and talked about. But they used those transgressions to make a broader argument that America is racist to its core, that it is baked into the foundation. They taught students those those uh, ideas that were published in those journals. And then those students went to become teachers and government officials and uh, Hollywood executives. So the the seeds were planted long ago during the golden era in America and now we we get the plant of of racial animosity that we see right now in 2023. So it's sad that these ideas have lasted so long. Hopefully we will long for the these older times where we could find that congruence with one another and we will Find them once again. You can hear more from me about the subject, about the history of these ideas on my show, Unapologetic Live, and you can find it at PragerU.com. Listen to the fear that's gone. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is the final segment of my time here guest hosting The Dennis Show today. And every time I guest host this show, at least for the past few times, I've had a tradition of giving a challenge out to the audience. One of our challenges was unplugging from, from technology for, for a good amount of time. Another challenge was going outside for, for 30 minutes and just spending some time in the fresh air. A third was having a little bit of silence and just time to reflect on your thoughts and reflect on yourself and all the things that can go through your brain and the stresses and the highs and the lows of the day. And today, I think the challenge will be a physical one. (laughs) I've recently been on a whole fitness journey. I'm 23 years old, and for much of my life, I've just been relying on my natural athleticism and not really putting too much time or effort into keeping my body well and healthy. But now I'm starting to truly understand the importance of, of fitness and just utilizing my body while I can, in, in, in the ways that I can right now at the age of 23 that I, that I might not have later on in life. And it's becoming increasingly important as I reach the age where I want to have children of just just thinking about the the person that I want to be for for those children, for my community at large, what I want to represent, and I want to be healthy and well, and I want to be active, uh, if not for for my children and for the future of my family, for myself. And I am going to be doing 30 minutes of activity today. That is the challenge that I will extend to you all. And I also urge you to update me on your challenge. Like, let me know on Instagram or Twitter or wherever it is that you are following the things that I'm doing, what you get up to today in in your 30 minutes. I'm always trying to think about ways that I could be better as an individual and as a human being. And I think activity is 
is something that we should emphasize. I remember when Obama was elected president, uh, one of the initiatives that Michelle Obama took on was this get out and play, where when I was a kid, the TV screen turned off for 30 minutes, a black screen, and it just said, get outside and play for 30 minutes. And that is what we did. If I uh, ever were to become the first lady, we're doing some get out and play, guys. <laughs> That's one thing that Michelle Obama did right, and I think we need more of. <laughs> Sean says, not first lady, president. <laughs> Maybe. I've got a, some years to put under my belt before I even qualify for anything like that. <laughs> But guys, it has been such a pleasure to speak with you all today and to hang out with you for, for three hours, wherever you are. I hope you're having a fantastic day. We all woke up today, and hopefully we are happy and healthy. And I just want to remind you that of that as we close out today's segment. If you'd like to support the work I do, you can check out my show by going to all podcast platforms or on social media. And remember, if you donate to PragerU, your donation will be triple matched today. I'll see you next time. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com. <laughs>